Hello and welcome back to the Communique. It's February 28th, 2009. I'm your host, Jackson Meredith, and I am joined once again by... Brian. Andrew. Steve. And we want to continue the conversation we started last week about ecology. We've been discussing this essay written by Don Fitz called Production Side Environmentalism, Can We Produce Less and Consume More? This is a transcript of a talk that Fitz gave at some point last year, and it was originally posted to the Australian website Green Left Weekly. You can also find this transcript on our discussion forum, Conquering the Divide, which is a pretty, is a pretty obvious link to that on our website at lunkradio.org. <clears throat> but I, I wanted to get back into this conversation. I know we spent an hour on it last week, but I did want to go back to it this week because we never managed to actually deal with the main thesis of the article. <clears throat> I'll quote a little bit of Fitz here. Society can reduce the total amount of time spent manufacturing objects while at the same time individuals in that society will have more to consume. Skip a couple lines down. This basic principle pervades all aspects of climate change, peak oil, toxins, and species preservation. The reason why it is an economic rule now but not previously is simple. Sometime after World War II, there began to be sufficient production to meet the basics of food, clothing, shelter, and medical care for every person on the planet. The only way the market has continued to expand during recent decades has been through the expansion of goods and services that do nothing to improve the quality of life, often worsen it, and always put profitability before human needs. <coughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I, I have a problem with all of this, and I just kind of thought of this. If he's talking about cutting production, um, if production is, is going to be cut, uh, we're talking about a loss of jobs for people. And really, how, do, how is this going to work in a society like ours where there's still, uh, you know, everything is driven by the profit motive? Um Aren't we going to see, with what he's talking about, aren't we going to see a decrease in jobs, more people unemployed, more people... Underemployed. Underemployed, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, as I see it, it's simply a matter of distribution. There's already a lot of people who don't work in our society, or, to put things sort of in his terms, don't have meaningful labor. Now, the top 1% of society that's basically in power doesn't really produce any labor. They're basically a managerial class. There's also a large portion of society, at least in this country, I want to say unemployment's at 7% at the time. Probably so. But, you know, there's always around at least 5% of the country that's not working. So, And those, those official statistics <clears throat> are always very skewered because they don't count people who've been unemployed for so long that they've stopped looking. Those mm -hmm. unemployments, the official unemployment statistics are only for people who are actively seeking employment at that particular mm -hmm. time. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, also, unemployment is much higher in many other countries, uh, especially not in the first world, uh, counting other countries. So, there's a lot of people who don't do any form of labor in this economy at all in that way. So, if you redistribute the 
the workload, there's a lot of people who can work. Yeah. And I, it's kind of what we were talking about before, that just by doing that, there's a large percentage that you can take out of someone's work week. And he, when he's talking about the effectivity of what you're doing, the value of something, there's a lot of paperwork and managerial work, uh, bureaucratic things that can just be right out cut. And a lot of unnecessary commodities is what he's talking about that really have no value in our society. And a big part of that is, I would say, propping up certain goods artificially that aren't useful towards people. Like we were talking about beef being supported by the government, whereas someone would, wouldn't necessarily be willing to go for that if it wasn't, wasn't so artificially propped up or valuable, considering how much labor and how much work and energy has to go into it. To, to put this another way... <coughs> Hamburger should not be $2 a pound in the supermarket for as expensive as it is for, in terms of labor and in terms of environmental factors. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be. I mean, meat needs to be regarded as more of a, a luxury item, and it should be priced that way. Mm-hmm. I think that would be beneficial to everyone's health also if they were consuming less meat, mm-hmm. considering that it is the leading cause of... Uh, of uh, heart disease, um, cardiovascular disease in general, uh, because it we're not meant to consume that much meat. It will lead to uh, uh, arterial stenosis, a buildup of plaque inside the arteries. So. And it really, mm-hmm. to me, again, like I was talking about before, how you can buy soda extremely cheap, but you have to pay a ton of money for uh bottled water or even juice it's kind of the same thing in how how as far as food supply goes how food is valued now beef and meat is readily available but other forms of protein are more like a specialty whereas they should be cheaper and more readily available but beef is cheap yet it takes a like Jackson said a large amount of labor and energy and is detrimental to ecology to produce yeah they uh I had listed as as one of the biggest offenders, um, ecological offenders, was the the beef production, the cattle rearing industry, because there is so much harm that's caused by that industry, the the pollutant polluting of the waterways and uh, the soil, and and then the, the release of the greenhouse gases. Obviously, the how does that work, Brian? We're, we're talking here about <laughs> meat, but what about? say, milk production, we don't even need to get into how unclean and unhealthy milk is for you, but how does that affect the ecology? Do we know how productive that is to produce milk? Uh, I, I would assume it's, it's similar to cattle rearing in general. I think they, they take the dairy industry into that when they're talking about the cattle okay. industry. But, the, mm-hmm. it, yeah, I mean, you have to feed these animals large amounts of feed, usually grain-based, and the feed that went to these animals could obviously be used to feed, you know, many more people. And actually here in the state of Nebraska, we have more cattle than we do people. (laughs) So imagine how much grain goes to feed, uh, uh, these, these cattle in Nebraska. And with all that grain, we could feed thousands and thousands, millions of people with, with all we can, we consider dairy and meat as well to be a, a pillar of our, What's well, a staple of our diet? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and there are plenty of societies that live practically entirely without it, especially dairy more so than yeah. meat. I would say. 
it doesn't seem to be something that's necessary for our survival. You can you can get plant based proteins and and uh, I mean there, if you really want to help the environment, I think the best thing that you can do is adopt a, a vegetarian diet or at least consume less meat. Now that's that's consu- consumer side ecology yeah. right there. But <laughs> when you look at it, you can obviously see what industry is is pushing. Beef is what's for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our that's one of our main exports is is beef. So mm-hmm. I think they yeah. that's one of the main reasons they subsidize it. But um, that's one thing I really don't understand is why why does the government want to subsidize the beef industry and corn for that matter i mean look at the things that we produce in this state corn and beef two things that are not extremely healthy and not extremely good for you yeah. and not good for ethanol production <laughs> they're not it's not the best it's it's subpar in all counts mm-hmm. now we have steve over here on the left who <laughs> is probably a master of thrashing corn based ethanol <laughs> and i'm sure he's just he's, he's itching to get in there Maybe thinking in the back of his mind, this is going to take me an hour to see my full piece on this. <laughs> well, yeah, the, we live in a state where it's very dangerous to tell the truth uh, about beef, about corn-based ethanol, about the military. I mean, I think that the economic leaders in the state, uh, you know, think that this strategic stratcom is they're really the golden goose for the future is to build up a massive uh headquarters for global military power and so it's when you have the leadership thinking like that it's it's you're really going swimming against the stream to, to talk about peace and yeah but yet i think the people are ready for peace i think we we uh we realize that, you know, that as Martin Luther King said, as, as many of the great prophets all throughout history said, that violence begets violence and, and that, you know, we need to build a peaceful world. So why, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding anyway? <laughs> but, yeah, I, it's... Uh, it just seems so obvious that many of the things he talks about in in the in the article about reducing militarism, reducing meat consumption, uh, different ways of providing transportation. He wants to eliminate ninety five percent of the automobiles in the United States, and that and we could do that. And, um, that was one of Fitz's suggestions in this essay here, yes. Yeah, so I don't think we really need to consume more. I think that's one of the kind of the misnomers in this article. He's trying to promote more consumption. But I guess maybe he's talking in terms of get, allowing more people to consume the basic necessities of life, which, um, to me, uh, uh, Gandhi said, we have enough resources to meet the human needs, but we don't have enough to meet the human greeds. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, there has to be an understanding of what wh- what is enough and and how to live full lives without consuming like crazy. Yeah. Although again, like in the transportation system, if we had 
full public transportation where you can get anywhere to anywhere from one place to any other place with public transportation, you could actually be more free to travel and, and be consuming less because it's uh, you know you're not in a private automobile. That's what I really want to talk and about is transportation. But I also yeah. want to address uh, part of what you sort of addressed. Um, you didn't make the exact point, but it's often put on the consumer that um, we we consume too much, we we eat too much, we use too much. But really, when you talk about marketing, consumers are tricked into eating things by additives in foods, by various things trying to tell them what they need and what they should want and what will make them advertising? happy. Advertising? <laughs> so, when you get into advertising, I mean, that's an industry that doesn't need to exist either as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> People know what they need to survive. They don't need to be told how to be happy and how to live good lives. I, I kind of wanted to touch on something that, that Steve was sort of talking about. I mean, I, I would I would sort of disagree with part of Steve's analysis there. Mm -hmm. He sort of suggested that, that Don Fitz is encouraging consumption I, I would say rather that he is simply saying he's. I don't think he's calling for more consumption so much as he is saying that it is capable to continue and continue to continue and even improve on the state of ecology in the world by maintaining current levels of consumption. Obviously, by attacking things like planned obsolescence, which. I don't think we need to go back into because we spent yeah. half of the show talking about that last week. You should go back and check part one to talk hear about that. <clears throat> well, but then there's a guy, Ralph Borsodi, in 1929. He wrote a book called This Ugly Civilization, right before the collapse of the economy, Ralph Borsodi. And he said, we need quality-minded leaders, not quantity-minded leaders. So it, it shouldn't be about doing more. And, or, I mean, well, I guess maybe in a sense you're doing more. Or, but, yeah, we need quality of life, not quantity. And, and so somehow we have to turn the corner on building quality in our lives so we find our contentment in... in in consuming less, and so I, I think that he misses. He doesn't really bring out that point enough to me, anyway. I mean, he he challenges a lot of the overconsumption that rightfully that is a problem in our economy and in 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 especially U.S. consumption patterns. But I think you know we we need to flesh out more the quality quality of life issues that. How we can improve the quality of life while consuming less, rather than finding ways to consume more while producing less. See, I, I think sort of though, the, sort of the <clears throat> the corporate boogeyman in their propaganda is if we were to adopt a more ecological, sustainable pattern of of production and development, mm -hmm. there is this scare tactic that this is going to become a third world country. The grocery stores are going to be empty. People are going to go hungry. Uh -huh. People are not going to be able to travel. People's homes are going to be cold. Mm -hmm. And I think Fitz's argument is essentially a counter-argument, a counterpoint to that, saying just because we would cut back on production doesn't mean we would return to a state of material poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think you can look at various examples yeah. in industry. We can talk about recycling. When you talk about mm -hmm. aluminum production, I believe that uses something like 25% of the 
electrical uses. Well, 5%. 5%. Is it five? Yeah, is it five? recycling. You reused aluminum. No, I'm talking about the actual production of aluminum itself. When you take it from the original ore, you have yeah. to use a. It's, I think it's an electrolytic process, but you basically use yeah. electricity, and it Incredibly uses an consistent. extremely large yeah, amount of yeah. the electrical uh, usage in this country. Yeah. Now, obviously, if we recycled more aluminum, then we would just lower the usage. That's increasing. That's not increasing production. That's simply utilizing resources in a rational way to actually have to use less fuel. To have to consume less while still producing the same amount for society, mm-hmm. and that's—I think—that's really what he's getting at: is using things in a way so that you don't have to waste so many resources. In, in a sense, sense, in a sense, the entire garbage and landfill industry is a form of unnecessary mm-hmm. production. Mm-hmm. Right. Obviously, you have an entire fleet of garbage trucks and an entire team of people whose job is just to take things. And throw them away, just to, just to mm-hmm. you know to bury them in landfills, you know when there are you know still valuable you know va- valuable ores you know like mm-hmm. aluminum right. for instance, mm-hmm. and at the same time there's the additional production of the guys who are mining new aluminum, mm-hmm. and of course this is what we're talking about reducing production and being ecologically sound by not being so wasteful with these mm-hmm, precious mm-hmm, resources mm-hmm. that the earth offers us. And to go back to direct ecology and uh, agriculture, you deplete the resources out of the soil, and then you simply throw them away and put them in a landfill. Then you put chemicals in your soil, and you deplete further from the soil. Then you take food from, say, fast food companies or restaurants or places. They just throw it out, and it goes into a landfill, and these things that have taken years to grow and a huge amount of labor, they go in a pile, and then they never go back into the ground, never become mm-hmm. used again. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is a process that is degrading a richness in the soil that took millions of years to build up in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to go back yeah. to corn, for example, which I, I doubt, again, is the best use for this, there have been countries, I believe Japan, that produces plastic out of actually grown product rather than going to all the work to mine oil and produce Mm -hmm. plastic out of that. And, of course, all this work that goes into our plastic is yet another disposable product that we put in the landfill that won't ever degrade, not not in our lifetimes or anytime Mm -hmm. soon. I I, I would have to say that I agree with with, uh, Don Fitz, everything that he's saying in the article. Um, I think one thing he fails to address, though, is... is the economic system. I don't think he ever mm-hmm. really attacks capitalistic motive, the profit motive. Uh, and I, I really see that what he's proposing here would run into some serious obstacles if it was to be implemented in, in the, the current system that we have now. For instance, um, if if we get rid of what a lot of these, these co- uh, corporations are doing right now, which is planned obsolescence, where they create a, um, a, pr- a product that's basically designed to fall apart on you. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's part of their, the, the reason they do that is because it's the profit motive. They, they'll get you to buy more of their products that way. Mm-hmm. So it's the how only do, way to keep people shopping. So and how do we encourage this production side environmentalism if it, if it hurts their profit motive? I'm gonna 
disagree with you to an extent on a point you make that he didn't attack capitalism or the profit motive because in a lot of these he flat out said we don't need the military in the sense that we have it we don't need bureaucrats we don't need people uh parasitically taking profits out of society without giving anything back he didn't name names and he didn't talk about political systems but he said uh, unequivocally just cut these people out they serve no useful purpose in our society so i think he went about as far as he could without saying capitalism is is the the problem here i i think yeah i i just disagree that he wasn't more explicit about it i think i think that he does kind of vaguely condemn these things but i i think that you know if, if i were to write a similar article i would be uh, direct more more direct about it more explicit and that's probably one of the first things that I address here, because if you're looking at something like uh, planned obsolescence and um, uh, producing large quantities of a product that aren't really necessary, but there's uh, a high demand for, I mean, that, those are the result of producing for profits instead of for human needs. I mean, if we're, if we're producing for human needs, things would be radically changed. I mean, we wouldn't have... Um, we wouldn't, for one, we wouldn't have crappy products being built that are going to fall apart and that require constant maintenance. Um, you wouldn't have every family having to own their own, uh, like, vacuum cleaner or their own, uh, their own, car. their own cars. I mean, that to me is one of the largest wastes in our system is simply, and I don't think we've got into this, is just duplicate products that people have around their household. I mean, does everyone really need a vacuum when you use it how often? I mean, couldn't you have a vacuum in your neighborhood? Couldn't you have uh, various other appliances around your house that maybe you use once a week? I mean, really, there is no point to have one of these in every household. And we do that with so many consumer products that everyone needs them. The well, plastic, the yeah, metals, everything that goes into that for no reason. And we're really going into the, the heart of what capitalism is here, where it's just about atomizing people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can just atomize. No, there's no neighborhood. There's no communities. Yeah. I mean, even, even the family has broken down into the nuclear And family. even farther mm-hmm. than that, because you don't have your family sitting around one television anymore, you have three or four televisions in a household, and everyone <laughs> has their own room, and everyone has their own of everything. That's, Maybe more than one. That's what I was gonna. I was gonna say is when you were talking about you know sharing a community, sharing something like uh, vehicles or, or vacuum cleaners. I don't know why lawn mowers, <laughs> yeah, lawn tools. But I was just I was mm-hmm. thinking that this is a concept that is so incredibly alien to people because that's not what our society encourages. You go out, you buy your own lawnmower, you buy your own stuff. You don't. Even, most people in these suburban neighborhoods they don't even know their neighbors. You know, it's it's it's. It's like we're encouraging complete independence, and that in itself is just incredibly wasteful. Everybody has to have their own lawnmower. Everybody has to. I mean, we're producing so much that's just completely unnecessary. And furthermore, that that sort of individual aspect of it in consumerism takes away uh, useful labor. You could have someone who went around mowing people's lawns. It would make sense for them to have a lawnmower and for them to sort of get something from people, you would spend less overall paying someone a reasonable wage to do the labor for you to mow your lawn than you would for the entire neighborhood to buy their own lawnmower. How long would it take for for someone to make that much money of an entire neighborhood full of lawnmowers? 
you think about the resource <laughs> difference there, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet people are buying new lawnmowers every few years, riding lawnmowers, and basically personal tractors for a small <laughs> lawn. What is, what is the point behind this? It's amazing. Well, I, I just, I really, I, I think that should have been one of the first things that he addressed in the article because I don't really see how we're going to make um, being environmentally conscious. I don't, I don't understand how we're going to make that profitable for the corporations because I don't see what's going to compel them to make these changes unless it it is part of their interest, unless it, it serves to 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 uh, make a profit for them, which is basically you know the ultimate interest of the corporation is to increase profits. I mean, sort of the one thing that kind of went unspoken in this article, these very rational ecological options he's offered, if they were implemented, are, are so radical and so alien to the way this economic system has grown in the last couple of centuries. And it would probably be a disaster. I think the, I think the Dow would probably hit, probably probably tumble all the way to zero if half of this stuff was implemented. But it comes to a point though where this this it might be an economic disaster, but it does seem to be the an ecological necessity. Mm-hmm. And if we have to choose here, wh- why would we not side with the health of the planet and the long-term preservation of our species yeah, rather than build, preservation. building community rather than building profits. Now, this yeah. comes back to a point that I seem to make in every show, that people are not trained to do their own labor, to do various things. They're trained, kind of like Brian was saying, to be consumers. Hmm. Now, you don't work with people in your neighborhood to get a lawn mowed, uh, to get these things done. You don't have various skills to use around your neighborhood. You go out and you buy something. That's what we're, that's basically consumer training. You train someone to be a consumer instead of doing things, getting things done with mm-hmm. a community initiative, kind of like what Steve is talking about there, mm-hmm. which kind of flows into my point on, on education, which you educate people to do a very specific thing. They go and they do that for eight hours, and the rest of their time they just want to buy whatever they need and they don't want to actually take the initiative they don't people don't have the time in their day to be ecologically responsible well, that's sort of a completely different subject now we're talking about people being trained to be simple machines you go to your job and you do your one little task and you don't even i mean these guys on the assembly line you know in, in detroit will pick on the cars one more time these guys don't know how to build a car they might know how to rivet one particular part to another part, but they don't know how to build a car. Yeah. Well, and to build something, you don't even need to know how it works. You put part A and part B, and you put it together, and there's really no extensive education behind that. And that goes to, I think, the the corporate motivation behind education. We're trying to build machines. We're not giving people education based on their interests and their needs and being responsible in the community or being responsible to ecology, they're basically machines in another manufacturer line for corporate interests. Well, you can sort of you can sort of make this into a bigger point too, where though there are important life skills that are just being lost culturally, mm-hmm. generation by generation. People don't really know how to grow their own food mm-hmm. anymore because we have this very profitable, very lucrative mm-hmm. supermarket system and mm-hmm. agro agribusiness empire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that obviously 
is raking in obscene profits by selling us what we find in the grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, you can even make this more personal in that people don't even know how to raise their own, raise or teach their own children anymore. They've given, they've outsourced that to schools and to mm-hmm. uh, daycare centers. People don't mm-hmm. do basic human community and mm-hmm. ecological tasks anymore. Those are outsourced to corporate interests and companies that are profit off of it, that make these profits off of that. Nobody really learns how to sew anymore. You, now you're expected to just work 60 hours a week so you have enough money in the bank to just buy a new shirt whenever you bust a seam, which is often because of planned obsolescence, which we are yeah. not going to get back into this week, <laughs> as tempting as it is. Well, that's, I think we can rail about most, that all day. That's one of the most frustrating things that I think almost everybody can identify with. They're, they're buying these products and they're like, why is this stuff so shitty like why does it fall apart <laughs> and <laughs> i think that's a, something that everybody understands and they're just like well, why aren't we why aren't the products that we're buying why aren't they of any quality and uh and i think you really have to look at the you know the the, pro- the nature of why they would build something and yet there's a there was a story on public radio today about how the repair business is really coming up and people who can fix shoes, you know, if you like a pair of shoes and they feel good and then when they wear out, in the old days they used to just put a new sole on mm-hmm. them and so, and, and that whole, that skill of re- repairing shoes almost disappeared. You know, there used to be like seven or eight shoe repair shops just downtown Lincoln and I think there's maybe none Maybe one or two. Yeah, because you just buy new shoes. Yeah, just buy new shoes. Yeah. But yeah, that, that and you throw your old ones in the landfill. But that's a good job. People repairing things. And I think we need a more repair and recycle education system. I'd say that's an honest form of labor. Is right, exactly. And yeah, utilizing yeah. resources yeah. that would otherwise go unused. And dumpster diving. We need to support <laughs> need dumpster that. divers. Really we who can pull stuff out of the landfill before it gets buried. We're already halfway through the show here. This is just too much fun. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to say, I mean, talk about, talk about you know, shoe repair basically go, in fear of going the way of the dinosaur here. Yes. But, you know, if, you know this sort of disposable culture that we're brought up to, there's, you know, there's the, the buzzword is convenience. Mm-hmm. Convenience. Mm-hmm. Whatever you need within your fingertips. But, I mean, for a lot of people... How many how many hours do you have to spend? You know when your shoes when your shoes give out. You know do you have to spend half an hour an hour in the shoe store finding another pair that actually fits your feet right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how is it not more convenient to to stick with a pair of shoes that does fit your feet right the first time and just have it repaired? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And additionally, to expand this a bit, uh, we were talking about how jobs would disappear if we built things for the long term. Now. Obviously, repair, um, research and design, actually thinking about the products, actually researching things, higher forms of technology, um, actually repairing things, putting things back in use. These are the kind of jobs that, that are phased out, that are unnecessary when we're simply producing things to discard them. Yeah, I, I, we really do live in a consumer culture. It's, it's amazing how much stuff that we could figure out how to do on our own and take care of by ourselves. We just, uh, 
um, defer to someone else. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really kind of insane when you think about all, like, how specialized society has become. I mean, we even have people doing, like, hygienic maintenance for, we have people cutting our hair and, and, you know, I think about women going to salons and having all this stuff done to themselves. It's just like, we've just created this just really insane consumer culture where everything has become a commodity or a service to buy and sell. And I really like Jackson's point. When when you say specialization, I think that's even slightly misleading because being able to put a bolt into a car carriage is not specialization in that you know how to build a car. <laughs> Building a car would be a form of specialization, would be a useful form of labor. I mean, you could give a lot to society if you could actually build something. But when you know how to put a bolt in and that's what you do eight hours a day, that's not a useful form of specialization at all. Well, eventually they'll have a machine doing that, and then the people eventually. can just be thrown into the army of unemployment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's it. No, that's what's like happening. a point that I slightly addressed is that labor is discardable, too. Mm-hmm. Your position becomes obsolete, and off to the landfill with you, too. Yeah. <laughs> off to the landfill with you, too. <laughs> I I would like to talk some more about transportation because that's something we haven't dealt with a whole lot mm-hmm. over this hour and a half that we've been working on it by now. <laughs> Did I rail about uh, William Jennings Bryan and his his talk about when he went around the world for a, a full year and he came back into the Madison Square Garden and all the 12,000 people were roaring behind him. He said, we need public transportation. I've been around the world in the last year. We need public transportation. Two things happened in the very next day. Number one, the white Southern Democrats said, I'm not going to ride with blacks in the same <laughs> car. They didn't use the word blacks. That was number yeah. one. Number two, the railroads and the automobile industry and the tire companies and the oil companies all got together Glass. and said, we are going to make sure there's no public transportation in the United States of America. <laughs> and here we are, a hundred years later, and we really have pushed society into these sprawling, awful suburbs where it's almost impossible to make a public transportation system work. I mean, we've gone so far down the wrong road with with uh, this society that it, it's we really need a major transformation pretty quickly. <laughs> I had a point that came to my mind. Now, we, we talk about the individuality, kind of what Brian was saying about buying your own goods, and you buy your own car, you buy your own gas, you do all this, and really... The industry is being subsidized by roads and wheels taxes and all of this uh, for the industry. Right. I mean, these, you know, these, these, you know, corporate profits that GM and Ford and Chrysler have enjoyed in this country for so long, obviously not so much anymore. But traditionally, you know, one of the, you know, one of the other concepts we didn't get into much last week is the idea of an externality. These corporations weren't paying for the roads that crisscrossed this country to make make it even possible for people to actually buy cars and drive them everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, that's that's a form of government socialism that's always been <laughs> acceptable <laughs> exactly. to corporate power from the beginning. Absolutely. In public schools. And you can always <laughs> use um, huge semis and waste massive amounts of fuel instead oh, of yeah. trains that would be yes, many, many efficient. times more yeah. efficient. Uh-huh. And then, of course, you're destroying the road at the same time. But obviously... People should spend all the money to get their own car and get their own <laughs> fuel and repair their car and put massive amounts of money in that, thousands of dollars a year, instead of having a decent 
mass transit system. Mm-hmm. Because that would be, again, socialization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to sort of discuss something that, that Steve sort of grazed very slightly a couple minutes ago. It's, it's one of the most underreported and yet one of the least controversial conspiracies in the history of this country. <laughs> General Motors got together mm-hmm. with the with the corporations that were producing their the rubber for their tires and the glass yeah. and the steel yeah. Yeah. on the bodies of these cars, and they went around the country and they bought up mass transit systems, mm-hmm. trolley car mm-hmm. lines. Mm-hmm. To dismantle them mm-hmm. and make people buy cars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we. I mean, this, this, this. <laughs> I would just like to finish my. Point I wonder here. where the union stood on that because, yeah, <laughs> they're making these rubber tires. Yeah, let's bust up these streetcars. Just, just to finish my point here, this. I, don't know. I mean, this this car culture did not evolve naturally. Yeah, it was yeah. not an inevitability. Yeah. It took a concerted corporate conspiracy no, that's true, to yeah. make to make things turn out this way. And obviously they did actually get busted for it and I think they had to pay a fine in a civil trial Minuscule or something. Fines, yeah. I mean it's a small price to pay for <laughs> sowing the seeds of an economic empire yeah, yeah. in this country. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, you can see that uh, as a trend in in corporate America going around buying up public spaces uh, taking taking is a priority taking arts and uh, different sort of free thinking creativity out of society as a as a general rule being production oriented ultimately towards profits well mm-hmm. i i never saw the the recent documentary um who killed the electric car? Maybe I know one of you guys have it, seen that's it. That's basically but, uh, what we're yeah, referencing. It's, it's, it's a classic, and everyone should yeah. go and see it. Absolutely. Who killed the electric car? Yeah, absolutely. But the, uh, when you were talking about the destroying of, of mass transit systems, I, I was thinking about how there's this uh, um, this aversion. This the, the corporations are trying to subvert these new technologies and. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe one of you guys could talk a little bit about what they were, what the message of the movie was. What, how are they subverting the electric car, and, and how are they how are they keeping it from being produced? It, it's significant that that GM and the other companies that were flirting with this electric car because it was legally mandated that they find an alternative in California, mm-hmm. in California to reduce to, pollution. The, in the first place, they refused to sell them. They leased mm-hmm. them so they could take them back yeah, once yeah. the tides had turned. Yeah, once. They never, they never marketed them properly. They never truly mass-produced them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, it's almost as if they were ashamed of their product. But in a way, the product was deeply subversive in the way that it made the rest of their line look bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These cars, it's, it's a radically different idea. An electric car, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that combustion engine. It, it, you have, your, you know, that big, loud, smelly, nasty thing. <laughs> under the hood of your car, which basically is fueled by internal explosions that's, that progressively shake your car to pieces just by driving it normally. <laughs> Electric cars have a simpler design, fewer secondary parts to fail on them. I mean, it would have ruined the <laughs> auto company's you know, mechanics and their yeah, auto their parts, auto their, parts auto, yeah. their auto parts cartels. Yeah, yeah, They'd have put them parts. all out of business because the product was and too good. If yeah, you think about yeah, it on, yeah. on the wide scale, you don't need to create a new infrastructure. We already have an electrical grid. 
we don't need. We would just basically do away with gas stations. There's well, yeah, no need for yeah. Them. yeah. Not only that, but I'm sure that um, there was opposition from petroleum companies. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's well, cutting it. That's that. The, the well, they're certainly they're certainly part threat. of the car empire cartel mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. It's a huge threat to their to their profit. Well, if you think about it in terms of efficiency, go from electric cars to electric buses. Mm-hmm. How much better would that be? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically what a trolley was back in the day. <laughs> yeah. They've had those. Yes, yeah. yeah. That was 100 years ago. So, so really, I mean, what we're uh, seeing here is that there's corporate opposition to te- new technologies that could better humanity, that could better the environment. And again, it, to, for me, this just all goes back to the economic system. How are we going to make corporations responsible when... They're only motivated by profits. I mean, is mm-hmm. legislation? Is that that doesn't seem to be something that's made a great impact? I would in the say past. corporations were expected to be more responsible in the past. We saw this in the corporation where there were more requirements on a corporate entity to begin with. They're basically given contracts to perform a specific deed, and th- through the profit motivation and through basically what we're talking about conspiracies, they've completely reshaped what they are as an as a business entity, it's become a an eternal, just immortal person. Thi- person, I mean, literally, under U.S. law, has the same rights and privileges as a human being, with none of the responsibilities. They don't have any of the legal mm-hmm. liabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we make these uh, these entities these these people on paper? I'd <laughs> say. Uh, foremost is abolishing corporations as a, as an option as an entity is would make a huge amount of progress in our society. So somehow introducing democratic uh, maybe democratic control, control yeah. would be a way to do that by and workers. And he does uh, fits in this article. He does end it with uh, economic yeah. democracy or mm-hmm. democratic economy. Imagine that. Imagine a, a factory or a car factory. Where, or a plant where the workers are deciding what products are made. You need uh, to take that and go to Venezuela, Brian. That's <laughs> not how we do that in this country. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you're not going to see these low-grade products being shipped out when the people that are assembling them, the people that are having a hand in their production, are ultimately going to be the ones using them. They're going to say, you know, why can't we use better quality um, parts on this make it last longer. Then I won't be buying another car in, in fifteen years. To make a parallel here, in in the article, and we've talked about this multiple times, making buildings to last five hundred years instead of fifty. Now, say you produce fifty some sort of unit buses in a day. Now you you multiply it by a factor of ten. Instead of producing fifty buses a day, you produce five, and then you can leave. You're you're giving the same amount of of product to society. It simply lasts longer, and you need to produce less. I mean, that's less labor right there. And we're actually coming up on the idea of of reducing the work week here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I want to talk about. You, you, that's a tenth. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, we could we could dramatically reduce the work week, and I I've always said this is one of my things that I've always been quoted as saying is that I always thought that the 40-hour work week was a, a crime against humanity. <laughs> but, I mean, people had to fight and die and and 
strike and, and protest yeah. for a 40-hour work to week. To get it down, yeah. too. And yeah. look how much technology has increased, production has increased, and we're still stuck on the 40-hour work week. You would think... Now that you're, we have you're actually being too kind. I mean, for a lot of for a lot of working people, that forty hour work week has regressed. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of people who have to work a second job, now, yeah, a third job. Exactly. Uh-huh. And not only do people often are they required to work that extra, they are again consuming unnecessary goods, uh, or I mean, get another job and buy that lawnmower you really need. <laughs> These are the kind of consumption patterns people have where they're buying a flat-screen television and working two jobs. Yeah, you, you would you would really think that since we are able to produce more effectively now, more efficiently, we would be able to cut the, the work week down. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's something, again, that's not really in the interests of the employers. I mean, they... And as long as this is a political system run by... These people, yeah. it's not going to be in the interest of the working class directly either, because if your if your wages aren't going to go up four hundred percent, if your work week is cut to ten hours, you're going to lose big time. And I think one of the main reasons why we haven't seen, you know, more of this reform where workers are afforded more. I mean, when you when you're working a forty hour work week. You have to really struggle to find time for your kids, for hobbies, activities that you to to really have time to enjoy your life. I mean, you're robbed of a significant amount of your life. I'm gonna go out here and just say that no one works a forty hour work week. You you may work that much at work, but you come home and you clean and you pay your taxes, you fill out forms, you take care of your children, you come home and you work some more. Yeah. I mean, it's eaten into a lot of time where people could be educating themselves. People could be, you know, really achieving some sort of actualization where they they achieve their potential. But, I mean, and and like, you know, the saying is you you don't have any time to rock the boat if you're too busy rowing. And that's that's what's going on here. I mean, people are too busy with work, too busy with everything. They don't have time to fight for, for workplace rights and things like that. And we've really seen a lot of decrease in the power of trade unions. I mean, when trade unions were starting out in this country, it was more of a, a something of a radical nature. But now, I mean, the, we see that unions are um, joined to the Democratic Party, which is, is not a radical political party by far. I mean, they're, they're basically just asking for a little bit, you know, a little, <laughs> as, as you say, you know, a little bit longer chain <laughs> Bigger cages, yeah. longer chains. Yeah. I'm going to just go out here and say that I believe it is a form of conspiracy in industry to take away the workers' time. And when you can't do that in the workplace, uh, commercially, you want to use up people's time as much as possible. Now, what kind of a catastrophe would it be to this system if the workers did have free time? Well, then, you know, maybe they would have some time to... Uh Think about things like like unionizing and uh, and demanding changes in the workplace and and uh, demanding that the, the the companies, the corporations that they work for, start to have some sort of responsibility when it comes to things like polluting the water that their kids drink. You have these like prepackaged solutions mm-hmm. on television all the time. It's not 
Why aren't you making enough money at your job? It's need money? Go out and get another job. It'll be easy work. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> More labor. It's and, and I mean, our society suffers because of this because we have people that sacrifice a lot of their human potential working, constantly working. I mean, imagine if we had uh, a society that actually had some leisure time, some time to to learn and actually, you know, recover from, from working constantly, then you would mm-hmm. see dramatic decrease in health problems because you wouldn't have all this workplace-related stress. You'd have mm-hmm. more time uh, actually raising children, more time doing uh, things that they enjoy, bettering themselves. I mean, people don't have time for any of this. I Sometimes, you know, if, if working a 40-hour-a-week job, I don't feel like I have time to do anything, and it, and it cuts into sleep time. I mean, that's, that's a, I think, a major cause of all the health problems that we see in this country is... is is the high work uh, hour work week and the stress associated with that? You don't see that in some other countries. We got into this in the education episode, where in our society and when it comes to industry, sleep is seen as a luxury. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have enough time. You're sleeping too much. It becomes a becomes sort of a macho badge of pride yeah. sort of thing yeah. too. Where oh, I I can, get, I can get by on three hours of sleep a night. <laughs> oh, I don't, I never sleep more than four hours. Yeah, a you, night. Can, you can just sleep and you know you can. You can consume your opiate, your your alcohol on the weekend, and then just sleep in on the weekend. That's supposed to make up for all the sleep that you've missed during the week. <laughs> that it doesn't caffeine, work that way. Your, your pot of coffee, yeah. the work pot of coffee, they have your, your caffeine right there. Get back to work. <laughs> burn burn the midnight oil, come into work, drink a pot of coffee, and get back to it. Well, we've, we've sort of confronted here this... This huge chasm between what needs to be done ecologically and how the every everything the way the economy is set up is dead set against it. What needs to be done to jump that chasm and make these these changes to transportation, to health care, against militarism? What do we need to do to make these changes reality? I think directly. I mean like I said, you didn't really confront it in, in the article, but I think we, we really need uh, democratic control by the workers of, of their workplace. I think, I think we need a, a radical change in our society. I think we need to... Um, I think we need uh, people to start demanding changes instead of just pleading with politicians and saying... You know, yeah, and I think getting into the le- uh, environmental issues, I think if we really move towards putting a cap on the, the emissions of carbon and reducing the amount of, of oil and coal that are burned, then you create more opportunities for creativity in the area of animate energy from wind, from solar, um, and in human energy, if need be, on a small-scale farms or whatever. Uh, but and You're talking about making demands to our rulers that um, industry be held responsible, mm-hmm. basically what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And I think there is a value in, you call it consumer side, um, it's not as much in the consumption issue, but just a revolutionary view of doing things for yourself. Grow your own food, repair things, take care of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that kind of like a lifestyle approach, right? I think I think there's a value in that in becoming part of your community, mm-hmm. in 
mm-hmm. in having that sort of accountability and community approach to things. I mm-hmm. mean, that builds network, that builds connection, that has a lot of value mm-hmm. in being educated and not just depending on commercial interests to take care of you. I mean, when, when we're dependent that way, we really can't struggle very effectively for these very necessary uh, ecological and uh, labor issues that are mm-hmm. important here. We need to find a way to implement all three, and I'm sure there's other ones that we're not mentioning. I mean, he, in the article, mm-hmm. he talked about um, really putting pressure on corporations but I don't think he ever really addressed how how to do that, and that's mm-hmm. that's something that you know is is except through economic democracy. Yeah, yeah, democracy, um, which is a key because yeah. I think you know if if all people have equal economic power and there's a sense that we need to distribute the the quali- uh, quality of life for all, then then the whole equation changes and. We begin to reduce some of the pathologies in our society and and try to make the system work for the people and for the environment. Can it be done nonviolently? Can it be done nonviolently? <laughs> I I think that a lot of a lot of this could be achieved with nonviolent action. I mean. Um, We've we've definitely seen that when people come together as a union or just standing up together as a people, and not not necessarily in the workplace, but uh, even in, in communities, um, taking a stand is uh, especially if there's uh, media there to to um, keep an eye on police and keep an eye on on those in power. I mean, a lot can be achieved nonviolently, but if you're in a type of situation where uh, the media is controlled by, obviously, biased corporations, mm-hmm. yeah. or where the media is turning a blind eye, I think that that's when you run into the problem with nonviolence, because if you don't have a camera fixated on your movement, on your demonstration, who knows what's going to happen. Look what happened at the RNC. There's a lot of mm-hmm. value to nonviolence. Now, I'm going to go out here and say that uh, Brian put a video on Conquering the Divide, and it was talking about the Black Panthers and how they were essentially a nonviolent group. The reason that they carried weaponry is because people were trying to to watch, to have cop watches, to have cameras, to mm-hmm. document things, and police would simply grab them and smash them and beat people up. Yeah. So really, you have these armed thugs going around beating people up who are trying to document what's going on, and they'll pull a gun on you and they'll beat you with clubs. I think it's it's uh, fair that we take means to defend ourselves. Well, yeah, that's, and that's not violence. That's what Bobby Seale was, one of the founders mm-hmm. of the Black Panther Party, that's what he was talking about, is that you know they grabbed guns because it was a response a reaction to this constant brutalization of the people in these ghettos and in, in mm-hmm. these, these impoverished communities. And, you know, it's, they decided, you know, the police aren't going to help us. The police are the ones beating us. Mm-hmm. We need yeah, to grab yeah. guns and we need to take control of our own communities and, and protect our own people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the media, the, the corporate media, the, the mainstream media isn't down there with their cameras every time a black person gets beat up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... One of the ways that we can kind of take control of um, 
what happens to us, our communities, is develop our own media. I mean, that's one of our mm-hmm. best nonviolent weapons. If yeah, we, what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the one of the best things that we can do, and that doesn't in, involve violence. I mean, the state uh-huh. or repressive entities are going to have a hard time using violence against you if they have to fear that the population in general is going to be made aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, I think that would be one of the main things that we can do is to develop our own forms of media and not rely on CNN and Fox News and all these. And that goes back to self-reliance again. Uh, and self-reliance not as individualists, as buying your own lawnmower, but as in encouraging people to be involved in the community and contributing themselves to a larger project as a community. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big aspect of it is just encouraging people, encouraging people to recycle, encouraging them to work for the betterment of the community and not just give money away to corporations on disposable goods and disposable mm-hmm. labor. Hey, if, if you have a if you have a factory in your community, in your area that's that you know is polluting the river, get a camera and go down to the Go down to where the, the the crap is being spewed into the river and, and videotape that. Go videotape yourself out in front of the out in front of the factory. I mean, you can you can put this stuff on the air. You can put it on a public access channel. You can release it to the media. You can you can you can take these tapes, make copies of them, distribute them. Really, creating your own media is a, you know you got to raise awareness of what's going on. And uh, I don't I don't see a lot of that. I mean. Well, and even in Lincoln here and in the state of Nebraska, we have public power and we need the people to get to the meetings of LES and to the, to the NPPD meetings and say, you know, we want cleaner energy and we want, for instance, green or geothermal energy. If we, rather than burning more coal, we need to put more resources into building systems where, for instance, going down the alleys, for instance, right on this street, we could have uh, geothermal tubes that get the heat and cooling of the earth into every one of the buildings on this block, and we would cut cut uh, the majority of the natural gas burning natural gas for heat, or you know electric heat, which is usually coal based heat. But again, there are community solutions that also are better for the environment. And, and I think there's a, a militancy to this, like we're conjuring up the Black Panthers that at say an LES event. Uh, you you need to bring your family and friends and be there and make yeah. demands. You don't mm-hmm. need to appeal to authority. You no. need to demand that they take mm-hmm. care of ecology, that they're actually working towards the best interests of their community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you were going to say we should go in there with guns. <laughs> <laughs> it is legal. I'm not saying in that Nebraska we should. Now, yeah. Yeah. I guess actually they, you know, in the, in, in, in the Natural Resource District meetings, they, they start every meeting, the first thing they say is that you can't have a gun in this meeting, <laughs> even though you can have it everywhere else all around the community. <laughs> but, we just yeah. can't take our concealed weapons in there. We can take our... Yeah, or assault weapons with the <laughs> That was one of Bush's big things, is he wanted the assault weapons to be legal again. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, gun artist. control is an argument for another day yeah. and another show. <laughs> well, it's been great having a couple of hours over the last couple of weeks now to do this. Mm-hmm. I will encourage the listeners, if you haven't read Don Fitt's essay, Production Side Environmentalism, Can We Produce Less and Consume More? You can find it 
on the Conquering the Divide message board, which is linked ever so conveniently to our homepage at lunkradio.org. And go on to CD and listen to Bobby Seal talk about community initiatives to have oh, yeah. free breakfasts and to work for mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. We put lots of good stuff Child on care. there. Go to our yeah. message board. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have here today. I want to thank Brian, Andrew, and Steve for coming on two weeks in a row and doing this with me. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Adios.